ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's fair to say you have quite a bit of growing ahead of you when you're a 10-year-old. The part of your brain that can assess risk isn't fully formed, which sometimes means when young kids are bored, they get into mischief. Usually, those kids get off with a slap on the wrist. But often, Indigenous kids in poorer communities aren't so lucky, and getting into trouble might see them end up behind bars. I'm Tegan Taylor, and this is Quick Smart, a show that feeds you big ideas in bite-sized pieces. On any night, around half of people aged 10 to 17 in detention facilities across the country are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. But Indigenous people only make up 3% of the population. So why are so many Indigenous kids ending up behind bars? And what programs are trying to stop that from happening? Someone who has been looking into this is Brooke Fryer, who joins me now. Hi, Brooke. Thanks for having me. How did you come to tell this story? Well, firstly, my position at the ABC is as an Indigenous affairs reporter. I myself am a descendant of the Darawal people, so that's um, from south of Sydney, south of Botany Bay. And our job as Indigenous affairs reporters is to really amplify the voices of our communities. And really what prompted this investigation for me was with this whole youth justice debate is we aren't really hearing from the children or from the families themselves. They are voices often left out of the conversation. We hear from the Queensland Premier a lot of the time, Anastasia Palisade, and we hear from community members and news reports, but we don't hear from them themselves. So I really wanted to go out to those towns in Queensland that have really high youth crime rates, particularly Mount Isa has the highest youth crime rate in Queensland, and just go and hang out with them, ask what's going on and, you know, why are... I wanted to ask them, why are you committing crimes and why do you, why do you keep doing it? There was that thing on social media a while ago about people posting photos of themselves when they were 10. Mm. You actually start your series on background briefing with your life as a little girl. Yeah, so we started the story like that just to kind of show, you know, firstly the age of criminal responsibility in this country is 10, um, which is quite low compared to other countries. And, you know, I wanted to show that while I had a pretty lucky childhood. Um, you know, I grew up in northwest Sydney and I went to school and I had parents that, um, you know, sent me to sent me to sport and things like that. So I was really lucky. And I wanted to show that, you know, while I was doing all this sort of stuff and having birthday parties and whatnot, there are other 10-year-old kids out there. Even today, there are 10-year-old kids out there that are getting caught up in the law and sent to police watch houses in Queensland, sent to the courts, and sometimes sent to juvenile detention. My kid is about to turn 10 this year, mm. and I, I look at that group of kids that she's friends with, and even the toughest, meanest kids in that set are little. They're little. Yeah, they're tiny. They are 10-year-old kids are babies. Yeah. So can you paint me a picture of what it's like sort of heading out to Manizer? Um, the town itself just visually is very green. I was very surprised because it's surrounded by the burnt orange landscapes of Australia. It's right in the outback. But the town has green everywhere. It's an old town. It hasn't had, doesn't look like it's had much upkeep. And you've got lots of houses that are kind of boarded off. They're owned by the government, so no one lives in there. And what's funny is that they have this suburb called Pioneer, but a lot of the kids and community people call it the Bronx oh. because the because Pioneer in um, Mount Isa is kind of 
I guess, the the rougher suburb. So it's where um, a lot of the crime happens, not only youth crime, but domestic violence and other crimes like drug possession and whatnot. And the Bronx in New York is also known for that sort of stuff. So they've kind of nicknamed it that, which <laughs> is funny. So you said you the whole point of this story was to go and talk to these young offenders. Can you tell me about the two boys you spoke to? Yeah, so the two boys in the first episode, um, Jackson and James, they're not their real names, but they, Jackson particularly, um, well, he went to juvenile detention when he was 11 or 12, so that's still quite young. Um, And he went in for, you know, lots of different reasons, stealing cars, breaking and entering, taking things from people's homes. Um, And he was caught up in this cycle. And when he was caught up in the cycle of repeat offending, he told me that he was feeling like, Firstly, he was feeling really bored, so it was something to do. He was he was influenced by older people around him and he was lost. He didn't really have any direction. He didn't really know what he was doing with his life and he kind of, he just felt lost and confused. And when I spoke to James, the other kid, he never made it to juvenile detention, luckily, but he was a repeat offender. He had pages and pages of offences. His were mainly stealing cars. He was too scared to go into people's houses because he heard a really horrible story about one of his friends getting hit in a house before. So he was too scared to go in. But he was also um, caught up in this cycle of offending because he felt lost as well. So they did both eventually find these crime diversionary programs that helped them. Was there anything that really surprised you? Yeah, a couple of things surprised me with hanging out of the with hanging with the boys. One, they kept calling me Miss. It was Miss, 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 <laughs> Miss. So it shows me, you know, they have a level of respect, especially for someone older who they're hanging out with. They definitely respected me. Another thing that really surprised me was not just with Jackson and James, but some of the other boys that I hung out with too. They told me that they would never hurt someone. Yes, they're breaking into someone's house and it's against the law. But they said, we really just want food. We want money you know, we just want to quickly get in and out. And I thought that was surprising. One thing that, you know, kind of pulls on your heartstrings, I bought Jackson and James um, McDonald's at some point um, and they didn't eat it. I kept saying, you can eat your food, you can eat your food. And James got out of the car first to go home and he took his food with him. And then Jackson stayed with us for a bit longer and he didn't touch it. He drank his drink, but not the food. And I said to him, I said, it's going to get cold, Jackson. Like you have permission to eat this. No, 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 it's okay. And then he took the food home with him and then I hung out with someone from the community later that night and she said, yes, these kids, lots of them save any food they're given for their younger siblings, nieces and nephews. Oh. And, you know, she takes food to them all the time, but mm. they don't eat their food. So you kind of have to buy him McDonald's and then let him eat that and then buy him another McDonald's that he can <laughs> take home because they just won't touch it otherwise. Oh, wow. Manaz is not the only place that this happens in Australia. Jackson and James aren't the only boys with these sorts of experiences. What is the evidence telling us about what's driving this sort of levels of youth crime in these remote areas and with Indigenous kids and then what the solutions might be? During this investigation, I asked that same question to a lot of different people like, you know, why is youth crime a thing and why and why haven't we as a country been able to get a handle on it? And, you know, there's talking about um, Indigenous communities, it does get very complex. But a lot of drivers of crime is, you know, alcohol and drug abuse, definitely. Um, Aboriginal people are overrepresented in underemployment. And the biggest issue facing a lot of these communities isn't youth crime, it's 
it's domestic violence and that can also lead people down a path of crime because they're committing domestic violence. Mm -hmm. They're doing domestic violence, which is, a, you know, a crime. So there's lots of different reasons as to why in Aboriginal communities there there is crime, like there is crime everywhere. The sort of environments that these children are growing up in, they're not growing up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, they're growing up in places that are just fueled with drug and alcohol addiction, domestic violence, mass police presences, and it's difficult. But unfortunately, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are some of the most marginalised people in this country and they have... Yeah, it is. It's just, yeah, it's sad. God, that's so sad. Mm. So there are people who are trying to make a difference, obviously, um, within communities and then also some of the structures that are sometimes seen as being the oppressors. Like the police are part of the solution, at least for kids like Jackson and James in Man Isa. Yeah, there is. And I came across one particular um, police officer called Amy Sewell, who um, is trying to help people like Jackson and James. Like James went to court one time and a lot of the younger people have like a youth worker or a support worker or someone that kind of goes along with them to the children's court. And Amy went with James once just as, not as a cop, but she just went as a support person. So she's really trying to get these kids engaged. Um, she tries to find them employment as well, which, you know, from Jackson and James's story, finding employment for them was, you know, massive. It gave them a purpose. It gives them something to do. And they actually they actually really look forward to going to work, which is, you know, so nice to hear. And there are people in the communities that are definitely trying to help these young people. But one of the ladies that I spoke to for the story said, um, you know, you get youth workers, but when you're out in regional communities, a lot of, she was telling me that a lot of youth workers go out there just to kind of do their stint and go back to the cities. So they have this massive, massive turnover of um, youth workers and it takes a long time for a young person to establish a relationship with someone that firstly isn't from their community um, and who doesn't really understand community politics, I guess. So once they do find this connection with a youth worker, then that youth worker is gone again. And then someone else comes in and it's just this cycle of, you know, children trying to find someone to connect with, but no one ever kind of sticks around long enough. But Amy's been there, the police officer Amy's been there um, for a while now, I think eight years about. So she really knows these boys really well. And they spoke really highly of her, which was really nice. Yeah. But like, I guess you're really relying on individuals being awesome, like Amy. Uh, is there a push for more formalised funding or models that could be scaled out in other places too? Yeah. So the people that I've spoken to for this um, investigation, I asked them that as well. I said, you know, is there enough diversionary out there? And, you know, their answers are always, um, there definitely can be more, uh, especially in other communities that don't have as much. Like it, you know, be worth setting up a football team or a soccer team or something like that. So there is always room for more, for more money for diversionary programs, what I've been told. Yeah. Jackson and James aren't 10 anymore. What are they doing now? So Jackson is working and James is working as well. And he has a, a baby boy. So um, just over six months now, I think he would be. Um, and he's um, got a girlfriend. They've been together for a while, actually. They've met when they were both doing crime. Like she was also committing back when she was younger. She told me that they just being together stops. It kind of just broke that cycle naturally. And then having their baby as well. They just have so much attention put to this baby that they don't have time to do anything else. And then James goes to work and, you know, wants to, when he really wants to be able to provide for his family, which is really nice. Mm. 
Brooke, when you're looking at this and you're reporting on these stories, mm-hmm. what do you kind of hope to see for the next generation? Exactly what Jackson said. He hopes that his, you know, nieces and nephews and other generations don't see the inside of a cell, whether that be a watch house or whether that be a youth detention cell. That really is everyone's hope, I think, for the future. I asked Jackson, you know, well, how do you think we can do this? It's a pretty big call. Um, And he said, well, it's easy. It's just get these kids doing something. You know, we're all bored out here. Diversionary programs, fishing, like other, other things that can get these kids engaged and, you know, give them a sense of purpose for some of them. Let's hope the right people are listening. Brooke, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.